A warning this week, you're probably going to want to throw something at the TV before this weekend's show is over. Pfizer, Moderna and TGA executives all under fire at a Senate hearing this week. All performed disastrously and the media simply ignored it. We won't. Also, white nurses warned they could lose their careers if they don't acknowledge their white privilege when treating non-white patients. No, we're not joking. I wish we were, but it's actually real. And another wrongly accused man says he's going to sue the ACT government over his failed prosecution. G'day and welcome to episode 218 of The Other Side Australia for the weekend commencing Friday, August the 11th, 2023. I'm Damien Curry. I'm a man and like every other man on the planet my pronouns are he and him and we're coming to you from Brisbane not Mianjin land. Brisbane and I won't be welcoming you to your own country where if you were born here you're indigenous too and if you're a new citizen you're 100% equal to the rest of us in terms of your ownership and rights. This is your weekly counterculture summary of the news and the most important commentary from around the nation and the world as the world gets crazier by the day. This is The Other Side Australia. Our hearts go out this week to Australian journalist Chung Lei and her family in Victoria. Chung has spoken publicly for the first time three years after she was imprisoned in China. The Australian government has been unable to do anything to help. She dictated her letter to diplomats who are allowed to visit her only once a month. She said, quote, I miss the sun. In my cell, the sunlight shines through the window, but I can stand in it for only 10 hours a year. I haven't seen a tree in three years. Lei was a finance reporter for China's state TV network's English language channel, CGTN, when she was taken away by police in 2020. She spent her first six months in solitary confinement without charge. She was put on trial in secret in March last year and has been waiting more than 16 months for her sentence to be delivered. Nice justice system you got going there, China. Seriously, Beijing, you can't do better than that? Even Australia's ambassador to China couldn't enter the court proceedings and her family only know that the charges involve allegations of state secrets. You notice how socialists do this, folks. They keep the rules nice and vague and muddy so they can charge people with anything and make the rules up as they go along. The most gut-wrenching line of her letter read, most of all, I miss my kids. Please don't take your freedoms for granted, folks. They're not the norm in the world and they didn't come out of nowhere. Before we decide to get all trendy, criticizing European history, colonialism, America, Britain, and our own elders here in Australia and ancestors, think about what you have and value it. It takes very little to get to a point of tyranny and injustice like China has reached. All it takes is a corruption of the systems so that they become a joke, so that procedure and rules replace common sense and human goodness. The dehumanized and dehumanizing horror of polite bureaucracy. 
Chung Lei is a political prisoner. Her arrest has nothing to do with anything she did or said, and everything to do with the trade wars and diplomatic tensions between Australia and China. She is being used as a bargaining chip. Only a sociopath, sociopathic regime and government system like centralised communism could do this to an innocent woman. Sadly, we're left to face the reality that Australia is simply too small and weak to do much about it. Will the Brits and Americans help us and honour their history of freedom and liberty and justice? Not likely these days, given their simile persecuting another Australian, Julian Assange, as we speak. It's hard to hold the moral high ground when you act as badly as the worst violators of human rights in the world. This happened in the Australian Senate this week as a few brave senators took on the entire Canberra establishment and bothered to get pharmaceutical company executives from Pfizer and others in front of a committee hearing to ask them some questions. Given that uh, according to the Pfizer non-clinical report, there was no carcinogenic tests, no genotoxicity tests, no immunotoxicity tests, no uh, iteration studies, interaction studies with other medicines, no longitudinal studies. And I note that in regards to pregnancy and lactation, that studies were conducted on rats. Um, does, how can Pfizer say that the vaccine was unequivocally safe without qualifying any risks around the vaccine? Uh, Senator, I don't have that report in front of me, so I'm afraid I can't talk to that. What I can say is that the TGA is one of the world's leading regulators. Okay, okay. Well, well you can take my word for it. I've got, I'm happy to table this document. Okay. So it, it clearly stated that a number of tests were not conducted. Okay, and given that those tests weren't conducted, and I accept it was a short time frame, I accept we had a short time frame, but that doesn't remove the risk that certain risks were not analysed and you never highlighted those risks when the vaccine was rolled out. Senator, I disagree with that statement. I think there was well, a very clear assessment of the benefit risks. The therapeutic goods is a very thorough and very competent authority perfectly able to reach a decision based that, on data which it, which it well, reviewed. That's Queensland Senator Gerard Rennick. He's a member of the Liberal National Party of Queensland and sits with the Liberal Party in federal parliament. Last month at the LNP annual convention in Brisbane, Rennick lost pre-selection for the third position on the LNP's Senate ticket for Queensland for the next federal election. That basically means he can't win again and he won't be in the Senate after the next election at least not unless he leaves the LNP. Now, whether you like Senator Rennick or not, his work on fighting to get to the truth behind COVID has been legendary and necessary. This week, he again joined a couple of other Liberal, National, One Nation and UAP senators to support a motion in the Senate demanding a royal commission into the handling of COVID. I too support this motion uh, and believe that we need a royal commission into COVID. Uh, I'd also like a Senate inquiry into uh, COVID as well. Uh, but anyway, I'll take whatever I can get at this stage uh, because there are a number of issues that need to be addressed in this. And first of all is the origins of COVID itself. Uh, we had Anthony Fauci come out uh, the day before Trump's inauguration 
and said that there would be a, uh, an outbreak, a surprise outbreak throughout Trump's term. Uh, this same person then uh, colluded uh, with none other than some Australians, uh, one Ed Holmes from Sydney University, uh, with the view to actually cover up uh, the origins of the coronavirus. So we need to look at that as well, whether or not coronavirus was deliberately made. Was there a deliberate cover-up? Uh, we then need to look at the diagnostic tool, the PCR testing. Uh, we need to determine which part of the COVID sequence was actually used to indicate a positive return. Uh, there's 29,000 proteins in the coronavirus. Uh, 29 proteins, 29,000 nucleotides. We need to know the length of the nucleotides uh, and that sequence uh, to, that was used in the PCR test to determine uh, whether or not COVID was positive. We also need to look at why the cycle threshold was set to 40, not 28. Now, you can say what you like about Senator Rennick. You can mock his country Queensland flat-A Aussie accent and make fun of him as many on the left do. You can outright lie and accuse him of being a crazy anti-vaxxer, as many on the left do. But you cannot deny that most of the points that he's raising here are valid, and that even if there are very reasonable, simple answers for a lot of those questions, they do need to be answered by someone much better than they have been answered to date. But no, it's shut up, put on your mask, stay locked up at home and take your vaccine, you irresponsible citizen, do what you're told. Track your movements on this app and don't ask any questions or else we'll send in the cops. And after the horrors of 2020 and 2021, there are plenty of questions that need to be answered. We also then need to look at what the World Health Organization told uh, national health authorities to code everything uh, that came back with a positive, every death that came back with a positive COVID test to actually COVID and not some other form of disease. So for example, people could have had comorbidities and were dying from other comorbidities, but the World Health Organization said that you have to actually put that to COVID, uh, which obviously would have bumped up the uh, number of COVID deaths. Uh, we also need to look at the role of the media uh, and in particular, uh, the way they've ramped up the fear mongering in, in regards to COVID. We need to look at the censorship that was involved with COVID. Anyone that questioned the narrative of COVID was censored. Uh, that's not the way science is conducted. Uh, science should always be open to scrutiny. So we need to look at the censorship there. We need to look at the role the state premiers played with their daily press conferences. Who can remember the Queensland Premier with her classic statement, there's COVID in the sewerage, be scared everybody. That sort of insanity needs to stop and cannot be allowed to ever happen again. It's easy to forget the horrors of 2020 and 2021, the obscene way in which so many premiers, health departments, CHOs, mass media and our fellow citizens were very happy to dive right into a mild form of totalitarian authoritarianism and accept it as completely OK because COVID. We need a royal commission to set up a set of immutable rules that in the case of a repeat outbreak, or worse, an outbreak of a truly deadly virus, God forbid, cannot be broken by any dopey state politicians, or federal ones for that matter. We need to consider why we bought 300 million vaccines, 12 doses for every man, woman and child in this country, when at the same time we were told that uh, two doses were enough. We dropped over $8 billion on these vaccines. We could have spent bought 75 million, spent 2 billion and saved 6 billion for frontline services, including maternity wards in my hometown of Chinchilla. Uh, we also need to look at uh, why 10 million people caught COVID after the borders were opened up. We were told 
The public assessment report said COVID was approved, the vaccine was approved to stop infection. Yet 10 million people caught COVID in the year after opening up. It did not work, and we need to ask ourselves why the pharmaceutical companies got away with it. South Australian Senator Alec Antic of the Liberal Party also spoke in favour of a COVID royal commission in the Senate this week. In 2020 and 2021, anyone who questioned or criticised the lockdowns in this country was called an anti-vaxxer and a threat to public health. But I mean, I've noticed since those days that there are members of the public, um, members of parliament, media commentators, many of them over here, by the way, who Senator Rennick did now seek to duck and weave and have forgotten all about that. They've gone rather, rather quiet on the subject. Senator Antic told the Senate that these people have gone quiet because the truth has caught up with them and the lockdown narrative has become indefensible. As has the damage through job losses, uh, through tragic suicides, divorces, increase in health problems, they've all become more evident. And the time will come when every single aspect of the COVID narrative, including the vaccine mandates, the mask mandates, staying 1.5 metres apart, remember that? It's a matter of urgency. It's in a matter of urgency that we examine now why, as Senator Canavan said, Australia's excess death rates are increasing after the pandemic. This is all after everyone got their safe and effective vaccines. Remember, they were safe and effective, but no one wants to ask what's causing the excess death rate. There are more excess deaths occurring at the moment than there were in 2020. The, the ABS has reported that in 2022, there were 190,394 deaths that occurred by 31 December and were registered by 28 February of this year, which is 25,235. That's 15.3% more than the historical average. I'm actually a bit confused as to why this isn't being investigated already. And this particular issue of excess deaths must be the linchpin. If nothing else is, a Royal Commission must be sought in order to uncover this very issue. Senator Antic also reminded us of all the horrors of mismanagement and malgovernment that also need to be investigated and prevented from ever happening again. In the beginning of 2020, we saw Australia plunge into an illiberal, draconian period of history. I think historians will reflect on this period over the past few years and utterly marvel at how this hysteria was created over a virus that had a 0.16% fatality rate. They'll write dissertations about how the power of the media propaganda fuelled this uh, and about the, uh, how imperative it is we learn from this and that we make sure that this is never, ever repeated. Under the cloak of emergency, legislation was rushed through our parliaments in the most illiberal manners across the country that entrenched the state's pandemic powers, and these also need to be re-examined. So today, I stand here in the last 20 seconds to support Senator Babbitt's uh, call for a Royal Commission, to support all of my colleagues that have continued to call for this Royal Commission. It's time the Albanese government put its money where its mouth is and called a Royal Commission so we can get to the bottom of some of this. That's Liberal Senator Alex Antic of South Australia. The vote on that motion to set up a Royal Commission, a motion that was presented by Victorian UAP Senator Ralph Babbitt, was lost, with Labor voting against it. Order. There being 28 ayes and 29 noes, the matter is resolved in the negative. Which is kind of weird, because it was a Labor-led Senate committee back in April last year, before the federal election, that made the first call for a royal commission into Australia's handling of COVID. 
a Labour-led Senate committee. Hmm, what happened to that? As the openly left-wing Guardian online newspaper put it, Australia needs a royal commission into the COVID response and should consider new laws to crack down on medical misinformation, the Senate's COVID committee has recommended. In its final report released on Thursday, the Labor-chaired committee called for greater transparency, including releasing of decisions of Australia's health advisers and the secretive National COVID Commission. The report found that although Australia fared much better than other countries in the first wave of the pandemic, significant failures had caused catastrophic consequences, including more than 6,000 deaths, about 30% in aged care. This failure to establish standalone quarantine facilities resulted in overseas arrival caps being imposed, which severely restricted the number of people able to return to Australia, denying thousands of citizens entry into their own country, it said back in April. Hmm. The report of a Labor-led Senate committee back in April 2022, just before the election. And how come none of this was reported in the mainstream media in the past week? It's as if the major parties and the bureaucracy and the drug companies and the media don't want us to even think about having a royal commission into COVID. Can't imagine why. Anyway, back to this week. In order to get these pharmaceutical executives before a Senate committee, Senator Rennick and friends had to work some real magic. So, of course, the media was all over it. I mean, this is the top execs of Pfizer and Moderna being quizzed about the biggest issue our country has faced in decades. I mean, it's big news, right? Well, I don't know about you, but I didn't see any this week. And I looked hard. Apart from evil Murdoch's evil Sky News and us at ADH and a few others in the alternative media, this whole thing pretty much went without coverage. But we'll show it to you in full here on the other side. Okay, so, so initially when the vaccine was rolled out, myocarditis and pericarditis wasn't a recognised side effect. Does Pfizer understand why the vaccine causes myocarditis and pericarditis? And if not, how then can it guarantee that it's not also injuring other organs? And can you explain the process why the vaccine causes myocarditis and pericarditis? I'll take that, Dr Hewitt. Sure. Um, Based on our clinical trials and pharmacovigilance data, as well as real-world evidence following the distribution now of, of billions of doses of vaccine, we retain confidence, strong confidence, in the safety profile of the vaccine. So, sorry, Chair, point I, of order. Sorry, point of order. I've asked, do you understand why it causes... I know that it's a low risk. I'm asking, do you understand why it causes myocarditis? I want you, I want you to explain to me why it causes myocarditis. Do you Pfizer, understand why it causes myocarditis? Pfizer is aware of very rare reports of myocarditis and pericarditis that have been temporarily associated with vaccination. Well, that's However, still ongoing for some people. Senator Reddick, Dr Threw should answer the question. Thank you, Dr Threw. That bloke there who looks like he just rolled out of bed and doesn't want to be there is the chairman of this Senate committee, Labor's Senator Tony Sheldon, 
a former union exec with the Transport Workers Union. And yes, Tony, Dr Theroux should answer the question, like the actual question, as in the question that was actually asked. According to public health experts and regulatory authorities around the globe, the number of reports of myocarditis remains small. I'm not referring to the number of reports. I want you to explain to me the mechanism of how the vaccine causes myocarditis. Do you or do you not understand the mechanism of why the vaccine causes myocarditis? It looks to me like you don't. And if you don't understand it, why are you saying the vaccine is safe? without qualifying the risks. So, so um, Senator Rennick, I think uh, Dr Theroux is actually about to get to that point. Whether people agree, whether there's agreement to his evidence or not is another question for others to make a judgment on. Um, but if Dr Theroux, if you could uh, again go to um, Senator Rennick's uh, question. Senator, uh, all medicines, all therapeutic products and vaccines have uh, benefits and have side effects as well. Looking at the totality of the evidence for Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine, uh, regulatory authorities, health authorities, experts globally, including in Australia, within the Department of Health and the TGA, have maintained that the benefit-risk ratio... That's not the question that I asked. I asked, can you explain why the vaccine causes myocarditis? Yes or no? Uh, Senator, the benefit-risk Yes or no? So you clearly don't understand the pathway, do you? Because you can't explain it. I'm not referring to the cost-benefit analysis here. I'm referring to do you understand the biochemical pathway as to why the vaccine causes damage to the heart? Sometimes big corporations get so big, they tend to develop the arrogance of government. They tend to operate like big, inefficient government bureaucracies, and they start to sound like government, never answering a question straight always using weasel words and waffle. In a free market liberal economy with lots of vibrant competition, that kind of arrogance and lack of accountability usually leads to business death. People stop buying your products and services. Unless you have a captured market, then government needs to step in and do the one thing it is actually there for, acting as the ref and regulating to stop monopolistic power and bad players. But in a world where the ref is biased, in which government, big government, protects big business and even forces the people to use their products, these businesses can continue to operate and not feel they have to be very accountable to anyone. They might feel that with the protection of the government that they can get away with putting out a product that isn't quite up to scratch, especially if government is pushing them and encouraging them to do so. They might feel that they don't have to take the necessary steps to make sure that the product is safe. And there may be a legitimate threat to a community that permits this kind of regulatory relaxation and risk taking. But the choice about whether we want to take those risks needs to rest with the people, not with the government. The government has every right to say, hey, look, there's a big threat happening here. We've asked the super duper technology company to build a thingamabob that will fight that big threat. We've relaxed some of the rules around that because we think the risk of the big threat attacking us is far worse than the risks posed by the thingamabob. And so we're not gonna go through all the usual tests. That's okay. That's sometimes a very, very good thing to do, allowing the people access to a risky solution if they so choose. But it has to be if they so choose. Such a risky solution cannot then be mandated by government or coercively forced onto people under threat of losing their livelihoods. 
That would be just plain morally and ethically wrong. Of course, I'm not suggesting that this is what's happened here with the major parties, the mainstream politicians, the media, and this particular pharmaceutical company or any pharmaceutical company. I wouldn't dare suggest that. Senator, I am happy to take your question on notice and come back to the committee with whatever information we can provide. I might just clarify, I was not referring to a cost-benefit analysis in my previous response. I was referring to the benefit-risk ratio and health authorities around the globe continue to recommend uh, the benefits... Uh, and that's, this isn't the question that I'm asking. No, that's not the question he was asking. You know, there's nothing wrong with Donald Trump bringing in Operation Warp Speed to speed up the development and access to a vaccine through all the mountains of red tape that exist. But there is a heck of a lot wrong with then forcing everyone to take it. There's a heck of a lot wrong with making people lose their livelihoods if they don't. And there's a heck of a lot wrong with making people who choose not to take it feel like social outcasts who are doing something immoral or socially irresponsible when they're not. I believe that even if a vaccine can stop transmission of a virus, that if it has been fast-tracked and it's very new and it's using new medical technology, it is still completely immoral and unethical to force anyone or coerce anyone to take it. Taking a risk must be a personal choice, not one imposed by government or the state. But when the thing doesn't even stop transmission, yet was presented to the public as if it could by government and the manufacturers, and they knew it couldn't, then I have a massive problem with it. As I said, hardly any of the mainstream media bothered to cover this story this week, which I find utterly amazing. But I guess we shouldn't be amazed anymore. It's a cultural issue. Nobody wants to stick their head out or it'll get knocked off. It takes bravery, courage, stuff of an age past. The left will mock you and your own party will dump you just for asking the questions that really do need to be asked. The Australian body that regulates medicine and vaccines is the TGA, the Therapeutic Goods Administration. They were also called before the Senate committee. The new head of the TGA is Professor Tony Lawler, he used to be the Chief Medical Officer of Tasmania. He replaced the former TGA head, Professor John Skerritt. Professor Lawler was questioned by Senator Malcolm Roberts of One Nation, also from Queensland. Senator Roberts started by questioning the original approval process for the vaccine by the TGA, which might leave Aussie taxpayers wondering why we have a TGA and don't just follow the American FDA or European drug approval agencies on everything. So this clip is Senator Malcolm Roberts questioning the new head of the TGA, Tony Lawler, about how the TGA approved the COVID vaccine under its old head, John Skerritt. Professor Skerritt, as I understand it, admitted in answering a question of mine in the last Senate estimate sessions that the TGA did no testing and relied on the FDA. The FDA in turn, I'm, I'm advised, did no testing and relied on Pfizer's trials. The, the same trials that, this, this, that I just discussed. On what scientific basis did you mandate the untested injections? And Professor Skerritt said they didn't do it because the FDA has $8 billion in, in budget and annual budget and 15,000 employees. So he relied on the FDA. The FDA relied on Pfizer. So 
then no one in the TGA, as I understand it, un un uh, reviewed the patient level data. Uh, so uh, I'll start, Senator, just by saying that I'm, I'm not in a position to, to answer for, for Professor Skerritt. Hang on a minute. He's not asking you to answer for Professor Skerritt, your predecessor. He's asking you to answer on behalf of the TGA, the organisation you now are paid handsomely by taxpayers to run. He's asking you, Professor Lawler, to do your job. So... Uh as, you, as you'd be aware, the, the, the Therapeutic Goods Administration does have the responsibility for uh, assessing and approving medications uh, on, to go onto the Australian uh, Register of Therapeutic Goods uh, on the basis of safety, quality and efficacy. Uh, all of the COVID-19 vaccines have been approved via our uh, provisional registration pathway, which enables earlier access to promising new medicines while data on longer-term efficacy and safety are still being gathered. I think it's important to... Uh, to Sorry, what uh, was that last bit? Uh, while data on longer-term efficacy and safety are still being gathered. So you provisionally approved them and now you're collecting the data? Uh, no, uh, it, is, it, is the, uh, it is the role of the TGA to undertake assessment of medication prior to entry on the Australian Register of Therapeutic Goods and we always have an ongoing role in continuing to collect data including through our pharmacovigilance activities which includes maintenance of uh, adverse event reporting and also uh, surveillance for the, uh, for the uh, development of signals. Okay, so more not answering the questions there. Basically, Senator Roberts asked simply, what was the process for approving the vaccine originally? He got the answer that it was approved according to the provisional registration pathway, but no explanation whatsoever of what that pathway involves. This is what bureaucrats do. You ask them, how did you decide to implement these new rules? Oh, we used our new rule implementation pathway. Wow, okay, question answered. I think what Senator Roberts is getting at here is that they just gave the vaccine the nod based on the American FDA and other world regulators giving the vaccine the nod. I sure hope the American FDA wasn't giving the vaccine the nod based on the Australian TGA giving it the nod. There's nothing wrong with speeding up medicine approvals that we know will help people. And there's even nothing wrong with making a mistake in the middle of a pandemic, provided you tell people Treat them like adults by giving them a clear indication of all the risks and the uncertainties so that they can make their own informed personal decision. And you don't force them to take it. Have we mentioned that? Now the ongoing approval of vaccines depends upon the adverse event monitoring that they do in the real world after the provisional approval. This fancy word, the fancy word for this is pharmacovigilance. This makes it sound very official. So Senator Roberts then asked the next series of questions regarding how adverse events are reported and recorded and investigated. Something that anybody running an organisation like the TGA of Australia would obviously have at their fingertips and be right across. Just on your adverse events reporting, um, on what basis? Because I've asked three times, Professor Skerritt failed to reply the first two times. It took me months to get it out of him. What is your process for reviewing the adverse events reports, especially doctors' reports of death? Doctors have reported around about 1,000 deaths, and that's been wiped down to about 14, with no basis, no objective criteria in, in, the, uh, in the assessment process. Let's just pause there for a sec. Senator Roberts is saying that doctors have reported around 1,000 deaths post-vaccination, 
and it's been reduced to 14 by the TGA. Okay, maybe there's good reason for that. Maybe most of the deaths were due to something else. But what is the process for working that out? That's a pretty fair and basic question, right? On the second question that you asked, uh, Senator, around the um, around, uh, I think you were suggesting that there was a uh, there was a uh, a wiping or a removal of deaths that have been reported. I think it's important to note, as I was saying previously, that there are a number of reasons why we encourage adverse event reporting, uh, but why the numbers that come through to our database of adverse event notification are not uh, and should not be taken on face value as, as an indication that there Excuse are... Excuse me. Sorry. Doctors are, are charged with the responsibility of, of writing out a death certificate and signing it. They know the cause. There were, there were close to a thousand of them, but they've been wiped by the TGA and in a review with, without objective criteria, down to 14. How can uh, you justify that? Well, I, 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 I don't think that it's accurate for you to characterise... Well, oh, sorry, I'm... Doctors I, I, I reported can't. deaths. I appreciate. The determination of the cause of death is a coronial activity. I don't know, Dr Pengilly, if you'd like to uh, reflect on... Well, I, I won't reflect on the... So, so how many of these have gone to the coroner? So the TGA boss, Professor Fowler, has done a flick pass to his senior medical advisor, Dr Andrew Pengilly. Before joining the TGA, Dr Pengilly was the former chief health officer of the ACT and a senior medical advisor with the Victorian government. Senator Roberts has asked if these 1,000 reported deaths have been reduced to 14 based not on the reporting by doctors that said they were due to COVID, but by the coroner. If that's the case, then how many of them were sent to the coroner? So look, um, I won't answer the question regarding the thousand, the thousand reports. Oh, oh, okay. No, you won't answer the question about the thousand reports. Why? How, how much are we paying this guy? I'm sorry, even if you think that the question is stupid or beneath you, Dr. Pengilly, it's obviously out there and confusing people. And your job is to take away that confusion and be accountable and give a straight clear answer when you were damn well asked to do so. That's why we taxpayers pay you the big bucks. Again, please do your job. I won't answer the question regarding the thousand, the thousand reports, but I think the issue Professor Lawler is making is that because just because you get a report, and obviously if a report of somebody has died, they have died, what we're actually trying to do is then determine whether that is actually related to the vaccine or to any product. And that is a determination which has to be made by further examination of the circumstances, temporality, whether there are other causes. And that means that a large number of the reports eventually are found not to be associated. And there are a whole range of criteria which you can use for those. Um, I won't go into them. Oh, you won't go into them. Ah, oh. OK. Um, that was the question you were asked, Doctor. There's a whole range of criteria. There's our official TGA checking doctor's reports to see if someone died from the COVID vaccine or not criteria pathway. Please entertain us peasants of low intellect and share with us your brilliant process, kind sir. And there are a whole range of criteria which you can use for those. Um, I won't go into them, but we can, we can provide more information on Could you on put notice. it on notice? I want to know the, uh, the objective criteria you use for, for changing a doctor's report who knows the patient and we're doctor's report. We're not changing a doctor's report. We're doctor not, reported death and you're not attributed. We're not. Attributed to well, a vaccine. Well, you're Senator, with respect, we're not saying the patient didn't die. 
with. I didn't say, say that. I didn't say that. You're well, misleading. Well, I'm I'm accurately reflecting that we were changing doctors. We're happy to take that on. on How, yeah. However, I want the objective criteria by which you change a doctor's reported death due to a vaccine, that back. Fact and not associated with vaccine. We're, we're very happy to provide the senator with uh, with information on the process that is followed. Thank you. Uh, following the report of a death, uh, following vaccination. Yes, following vaccination, not just the report of a death. We look forward to the answer, which is obviously so complex and mysterious that you couldn't provide it then and there, and had to take the question on notice. Even though it's something so hugely important to the people that you work for, the public who pay your wages, that you should have it at your fingertips. You know what really makes my blood boil? Is when these same people say that, oh, there's so much misinformation and disinformation out there, yet they do absolutely nothing to help us get clear information to the public. And this is why, folks, we must never accept disinformation and misinformation policing in our society, because bureaucrats use it as a thing to hide behind. You TGA people are paid plenty. We have a right to expect you to do your job at a very high level. And that performance by Professor Fowler and Dr. Pengilly was in my humble opinion, and in my less humble professional opinion, utterly woeful and unacceptable. Are you ready to throw something at your television set yet? I did warn you. The performance of the TGA and of Pfizer were pretty bad at this inquiry. They came unprepared for the most basic questions. They obfuscated, they rambled, they gave pre-prepared legalistic pat responses that continuously repeated obvious already known facts and did not answer questions. And in doing so, they made a mockery of the Australian Senate Committee and the Chairman and the Australian people it represents, us. Now, I hate to tell you, but if you thought the TGA and Pfizer were bad in those performances, the lack of respect and preparation from the people of the other pharmaceutical company that makes mRNA vaccines, Moderna, was even worse. Senator Alex Antic tabled a report from a respected international medical journal published late last year that said the rate of adverse reactions classified as serious was one in 800 doses. He then asked the Moderna execs a pretty basic question. The rates of serious adverse reactions are occurring at a rate of one in 800 people vaccinated. Um, now, according to your own clinical trial data, um, do you accept uh, that that is the rate? And if not, uh, how does your overall rate of serious adverse events compare with um, routine traditional vaccine products such as uh, flu vaccines and the like? So um, I'm not aware of the report to which you're referring. This is, um, this is the report of a, of a, of a prominent um, uh, medical journal. You're not aware of that? I'm, I'm not aware of that. Do you, do you think, do you, think you should be aware of that? Um. I'm sorry, Senator Antic, sir, but a dog ate my homework and I had to stay up late because my mum was sick and then I slept in and I missed my bus. Honestly, give me a break. Everybody has heard of the study with the one in 800 figure. This, is, this has been widely reported. You are a manufacturer of vaccines. I find it difficult to think that you wouldn't be aware of this report. 
So one thing I can say, one thing I can say is that as a company, we have a, a, a as part of our pharmacovigilance activities, we do do routine uh, uh, screens of the literature to, to uh, look particularly for publications that include adverse events. We do review those publications and those adverse events, and we do include them into our global pharmacovigilance database. So that manuscript would have been assessed by our pharmacovigilance department, and the information from it would have been taken into account and evaluating the uh, so, benefit profile of our vaccines. Woeful, waffle words again. We have a department that looks at the studies like that and that study would have been looked at by that department and they would have studied the study and put it in the study of all studies to be studied. Again, give me a break. Let's try a more simple and basic question, shall we? A simple, fundamental basic question that any executive in this guy's position should be able to answer off the top of his head even if he hadn't had the common decency to prepare properly for a Senate hearing. And what is Moderna's overall rate of serious adverse events and how does that compare with routine vaccinations was the question. Um, so um, I, I, I don't have the actual rates of adverse events. Um, to you don't, you don't have the rates of adverse events in I front can, of you. If you just, I can refer to the, uh, I'll see if I can refer to the product information. What I can tell you uh, is that the okay. rate of serious adverse events in our, in our uh, very large randomised controlled trials was actually um, uh, in, a, in, a, in a similar range to what was observed in the placebo. You, but you, don't, you can't tell me the rates of serious adverse events. You realise you've come to a Senate hearing today for the purposes of exactly that question, and you can't tell me the rates of serious adverse reactions to your product, which I find extraordinary. Well, what I can, what I can tell you is that uh, on the TGA website, there are, it, it reports there are 1.2 reports uh, per That's the TGA. I'm not asking about the TGA. I'm asking about Moderna. You, you, you must have that information. You are a multinational company. You're before a Senate inquiry. And you cannot tell me the rates of serious adverse... I mean, it's quite extraordinary what you're telling me. It's so extraordinary that it borders on contempt. I don't know if these Senate inquiries have the power to impose section, sanctions for contempt of their hearings, but maybe they should have in the future. I mean, it's quite extraordinary what you're telling me. Nobody can tell me that. Dr Clark, so... You so I don't want to cut you off. Uh, I, can, I can provide that information um, uh, on notice. Um, I, I just... what, I, what, I, what I can tell you is that we have observed, in our clinical trials, we observed no safety concerns. There were no imbalances of serious adverse events, uh, adverse events of special interests or, or, or deaths between the, uh, between the uh, vaccine group and the placebo group. Uh, Chair, uh, Chair, I think we're wasting our time here. Thank you. You can have the call back. What an absolute disgrace, holding every one of us as Australian citizens in absolute contempt. Three stunned mullets from Moderna, unable to answer the most basic question. Astounding stuff. And a big shout out again to Senator Alex Antic of South Australia. We need more politicians like that bloke. And where the heck were our media? That was some very good television there, but I didn't see it on any of the old media channels, did you? If you want the actual news that matters, folks, come to ADH. What a ridiculous charade this voice to parliament's become. And as the polls show, the yes vote is rightly falling off a cliff as more and more Aussies wake up to the fact that we're being manipulated here.
the Yes campaign becomes more and more desperate. They're trying to accuse the No campaign of misleading people. And every time they do, it backfires on them. As the notorious far left wing at PR guy 17 account on Twitter tried to claim, fact check. Is the Uluru statement from the heart really 26 pages long as some conspiracy theorists have claimed? Verdict, false. The claimed figure is off by 25 pages, 96% wrong, slightly above the average inaccuracy rate for cookers. The correct number of pages is one. Let this be a lesson to us all, folks. This is why we must never let the left appoint themselves fact-checkers or arbiters of the truth as if they're trying, to, as they're trying to do now with their utterly disgraceful misinformation and disinformation laws. The truth was made very clear by independent journalist Rukshan Fernando on his site this week. I want to play this video of Anthony Albanese uh, talking about this in Parliament the other day where he called people, Australians, conspiracy theorists, if they believe it's longer than one page. And then I want to play you uh, this uh, other clip um, cut in between that of Professor Megan Davies, one of the architects of the Voice to Parliament, uh, the uh, Uluru Statement from the Heart, uh, talking about how it's you know not just the one page, it's multiple pages. Now, before I play this video for the fact checkers watching there, I do note that Megan Davies, Professor Megan Davies, uh, and, you know, she has put out a statement saying it's actually, no, it's just one page. So keep that in mind. There has been a statement put out uh, by people in the yes side saying, actually, no, it's just one page. And we didn't really mean it exactly how we meant it when we said these things before. So let's play the video. Uh, it is something that has been out there, like a whole lot of the QAnon theories. We have all sorts of conspiracy stuff out there, but this is a ripper. That is the Uluru Statement from the Heart on an A4 bit of paper. That is it. So the Uluru Statement, many people don't know, is 18 pages long. That is the Uluru Statement from the Heart on an A4 bit of paper. That is it. It's not just the one-page invitation to the Australian people. It also includes what we call our story, which is an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history of Australia. Members they on put my in left. an FOI, and what they got was a whole lot of minutes from meetings. Um, and it's unfortunately one of the parts of the Uluru Statement that is not often read and overlooked. Um, so these 18 pages include our story, so our history of our people. With a whole lot of verbal statements from whoever to whoever. And also a few pages, about four, on the reform. Why do we want a voice? Um, what will a voice do? Nothing exposes exposes the falseness of the arguments being put by the No campaign than this conspiracy theory and Order. nonsense. So I urge everybody, if um, they do have the opportunity to look at the Referendum Council report and, and read that whole document, which we call the Uluru Statement from the Heart. What an embarrassing disgrace. They can't decide whether it's 18 pages or 26 pages or one page, but again, the gaslighting. If the No campaign dares to point out that it's not just one page, as they originally said it wasn't, then we are the conspiracy theorists and liars misleading everyone. What an absolute joke. Honestly, it's so disingenuous and misleading and upside down that we really should just vote no to teach them all a lesson. 
not just no to the voice, but no, we won't be lied to. No, we're not that stupid, thanks. And no, we find your attempts to gaslight us and manipulate us disgusting, and we're not going to have it. So what was in that document? Well, Rukshan very kindly takes us through every page. I've read this document and there is meeting notes in there. There is all sorts of stuff in there. But once you get to uh, a certain uh, document, which I believe is document uh, 14, let me just go down to show you guys. It starts off with Uluru's statement from the heart and it's got that main summary statement that Anthony Albanese is holding up. But then it goes on, uh, same document, document 14. Okay, it goes on and um, it has a whole heap of other stuff. Uh, and this is what I believe Professor Megan Davis is referring to in that video, their story. It, it all kind of matches up with what she's saying. Uh, the law, invasion, resistance. And this talks about things about, uh, you know, treaty, uh, activism, uh, land rights. Uh, I think it even mentions reparations. So it's a very thorough document in terms of the Uluru statement and what it's about. Uh, tells the truth of history, um, you know, all sorts of reform. It's, it's, everything's there. Like there's a lot of things in there, which is, you know, I, I guess is the uh, totality of what makes up the main Uluru statement from the heart. But of course, we're being told just to focus on this one page and, and that's it. And that's really because over the last couple of weeks, we've seen how Anthony Albanese doesn't want to engage in discussing anything to do with things like treaty and, and, the, and the greater details involved in what passing this referendum to the yes vote would actually mean for the country. Yep, that's the truth from independent video journalist Rukshan Fernando. And you can check out that whole segment at The Real Rukshan on Twitter and on YouTube. Great job, Rukshan. Thanks for your work. As I said on this show and wrote in The Spectator online months ago, the goal of the Yes campaign is to make sure that we don't see the detail and to keep us as ignorant as possible. They just thought they could just bully us into voting yes by running a simple campaign that if you vote no, you're a racist. But we're too clever for them. And if there's one thing the elites hate, it's when the deplorables outsmart them. Good for us. The founder of Australia's leading alternative nurses union has revealed that nurses with any kind of white European background could lose their jobs and careers simply for not acknowledging their white privilege when looking after non-white patients. I wonder how they measure all this whiteness. They have a little, little card that has little grades of whiteness on it. Graham Haycroft, the founder of Red Unions and the Nurses Professional Associations of Australia, an alternative non-political union for nurses that has grown to thousands of members now, says the ridiculous new guidelines have been implemented by the Australian Health Practitioner Regulation Agency, ARPRA. ARPRA was founded in 2010 and it's a government statutory authority that has the power to deregister nurses or doctors who break its rules, or at least strongly recommend that to the boards in each state. The organisation says that public safety is our priority. Excellent. Another wonderful organisation keeping us safe. It has a list of clinical safety rules that if broken could put a health practitioner's registration and therefore their whole career at risk. But Graham Haycroft has told the other side this week 
that ARPA has another set of rules. Nothing wrong with the clinical ones. The clinical safety rules make sense. You can measure them, they're objective. But this other set of rules are called cultural safety rules, which if broken could also get a nurse deregistered. But these cultural rules seem strangely Marxist and controlling. The cultural safety concept was developed in a First Nations context and is the preferred term for nursing and midwifery. However, the presence or absence of cultural safety is determined by the recipient of care. It is not defined by the caregiver. So what, what does that mean? Not defined by the caregiver? Well, the patient says, I don't think you treated me in a culturally safe way. I'm reporting you. And it's okay. So what is the, um, how does cultural safety compare to clinical safety? If a nurse is doing something which, which is clinically or professionally unsound, mm. there, there's some fairly objective tests for that. And if someone is accused of that, uh, there would need to be proof. And if the nurse is found guilty of you know, professional malfeasance, Right, or clinical malfeasance, then they can lose their registration. Fair enough. But there's an objective test. Yes. Right? Now, what the Code of Conduct says is that cultural safety is equivalent to or equal to clinical safety. Oh, my God. Right? So cultural safety, this subjective thing that, that you can't really measure. So someone, some patient says, I don't like the way you did uh, held your mouth when you spoke to me or whatever. Uh, Makes I, no point. I noticed that you didn't uh, uh, apologise for your white privilege, because right? that's, that's specifically stated. I mean, I'm trying to you know, be flippant about this, but the reality is it's a totally subjective test. The patient says, I wasn't treated with cultural safety. There is no objective assessment of that. Right. That's the case. But this can be just stripped, stripped off. Well, well, let's see what it says about cultural safety. We'll just read on a little bit now. Yeah. Uh, cultural, reading. <laughs> cultural safety is a philosophy of practice that is about how a health professional does something, not just what they do. Cultural safety... So I'm, I'm imagining myself as a nurse now and I'm trying to work out how I've got to behave. Cultural safety represents a key philosophical shift from providing care regardless of difference to care that takes account of people's... I mean, I, what does that mean? I mean, it's just one of these waffle word bloody... It means um, the left are about control. Yes. Right. It um, means you don't know what it means so I can control you. Exactly. <laughs> It's like it can change the meaning any time bloody it's life. totally subjective. Yeah. And, uh, you know, as a professional union organisation, you can't have your members subject to the proclivities and opinion of bloody bureaucrats. It's that, that's the issue. Yeah. They yeah. don't like you. They say, oh, you didn't treat so-and-so with cultural safety. That's indefinable. Um, bang, you lose your registration. And there's no appeal. You can't yeah. get back. So you've got total control. This is how you do control. Okay, slide three... It requires nurses to undertake an ongoing process of self-reflection and cultural self-awareness. More things you can't possibly objectively measure. And an acknowledgement of how their personal culture impacts on care. Hmm. In relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, cultural safety provides a decolonizing model of practice. Here comes the, uh, the, the left-wing neo-Marxist identity politics view of the world based on dialogue, communication, power sharing and negotiation and, 
Oh, here's the kicker. And the acknowledgement of white privilege. When did we decide white privilege was uh, an official thing uh, that goes into... I didn't know that nurses had to acknowledge their white privilege. Not just to themselves, but to the patient. Yeah. Well, that's what it says. Um, and if you don't do it, um, it, it simply means that the, the regulatory authority uh, has total control over practitioners. Nurses are subject to the total subjective whim of, uh, of APRA. That's Graham Haycroft. He says the traditional nurses unions will never fight these rules because they were behind making them. But the Red Unions, Nurses Professional Associations of Australia, will. Another political staffer wrongly accused of rape says he too is considering suing the ACT government, hitting out at former ACT chief prosecutor Shane Drumgold. 23-year-old Alex Matters was found not guilty of two counts of raping a fellow Australian National University student that he was having a casual relationship with. Both he and the man accused of raping Brittany Higgins, Bruce Learman, are considering suing the ACT government over the charges that were levelled against them. Alex Matters was a Labor staffer and he'd lost his job working for the office of Federal Labor MP David Smith. The Daily Mail reports that in the Matters case, the accuser had voice and text messages presented in court showing that she was questioning whether she'd even been assaulted, saying in one of them, quote, I slept with him multiple times. I don't know if I got raped. Alex Matters told Sky News' Shari Markson that the complainant then, under cross-examination, stated she actually had given consent to sex. This caused the judge in the trial to speak to the prosecutor about speaking to Mr Drumgold in determining whether or not to drop the charge of rape. But Matters says that Drumgold ultimately decided that they weren't going to be dropping the charge and they were still going to be asking the jury to find him guilty. He was found not guilty, thank goodness, after a gruelling ordeal of the trial and a half a day of jury deliberations. He's always vehemently denied the allegations and now he says there needs to be full transparency regarding Mr Drumgold's involvement in his trial. All the cases that aren't staffers facing trials, you want to know, you know what decisions are being made in terms of the charges they face and how many times are prosecutors just putting charges through to the jury when you know, it shouldn't actually be up to the jury at that stage. Um, I, th I, think, I think the question's got to be asked of what Drumgold had, um, what, what say Drumgold had in that decision-making process there, and also, you know, of the decision to take it to trial. That's Alex Matters, an innocent man put through hell, speaking to Shari Markson on Sky News and raising some very valid and serious points. Last week, we reported on the findings from the inquiry into the Learman charges, which made several damning findings against Mr Drumgold, including that he knowingly misled the ACT Supreme Court and had, quote, lost objectivity during his prosecution, prosecution of Mr Learman. Accountability and consequences are needed here, not just for Drumgold, but also the ACT's Labor-Green coalition government. 
The political weaponization of the criminal justice system in our Western democracies is a very troubling trend. A senior international legal expert says that the weaponization of the US Department of Justice and the FBI for political attacks in America has reached a shocking level as it becomes clear that intelligence agents knowingly lied to the public about the legitimacy of the Hunter Biden laptop. University of Queensland Garrick Professor of Law James Allen told Alan Jones on ADH-TV this week that the FBI knew that the laptop was real a year before the 2020 presidential election, but stayed silent as a group of intelligence agents knowingly misled the public by claiming that it had all the hallmarks of a Russian hoax. The New York, uh, the New York Post was covering this back before the last uh, presidential election, but of course they were they were censored by social media, and now we know that the FBI knew that the laptop was real going back to 2019, and so it, it's really quite remarkable. You had 51 intelligence agents, former, present. They wrote that letter saying that the Hunter Biden laptop had, I think the quote is, all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation. They, that was a knowing lie. They knew it was real. They knew the stuff on it. Um, it's now clear that he was getting paid millions for giving access to his dad. I mean, if this were a Republican son and a Republican president, it would be wall-to-wall daily New York Times, Washington Post. Instead, you're lucky if there's a small paragraph on page 14. It's really shocking. There's a long-serving FBI agent who has turned whistleblower. Now, as you say, he's under oath, so there are huge criminal penalties if you lie, and he is saying and given evidence to this House of Representatives Committee that the FBI knew the Hunter Biden laptop was real from as far back as November or December 2019, a year before the 2020 presidential election. Now, James, your point is journalists swallowed the line that it was Russian disinformation. So the top dogs in the FBI knew that the letter put out by those 51 intelligence agents to whom you've referred before the 2020 election, claiming that the laptops had all the hallmarks of Russian disinformation, they knew that was a flat out lie. So question, supposing this had re-hit the light of day, this is before the election, Trump versus Biden, what hope would Biden have had of winning? But there, there was polls after the fact that asked people if it would have changed their view, and it, it, it clearly would have, if you b believe polls, and they don't always, uh, that it would have changed their voice. You have to remember, Trump got, what, the second most votes ever. What did he get, 81 million or something yep, when he yep. lost in 2020? But he lost by a couple million votes. But on the Electoral College, he only needed to flip 20,000 votes to win. The, you know, if you pick your four states... There were four very close states. You flip 20,000 votes and Trump uh, wins. So this is very uh, shocking sort of behavior by the intelligence services. And remember, they're doing this while Trump is president. They're going behind his back, the senior sort of intelligence people. Let's face it, the, when you come into office with uh, your, your pledges to clean the swamp, you know, one of the problems Trump had is he just, he was way too trusting of the bureaucrats he put in charge of these departments. I think if he were to win in 2024, you won't see any insiders appointed to anything. You, you're going to have to bring in outsiders for all of the main departments. Remember, Washington, D.C. votes 94 percent Democrat. 
That's why you can't get a fair trial there as a, as a Republican on a, on a charge related to politics. It is, it is just wall-to-wall Democrats. Now, Canberra is not as bad as that, but it's pretty bad. That's University of Queensland Garrick Professor of Law James Allen speaking to Alan Jones here on ADH-TV this week. Well, that's it for another week. I told you you'd want to throw something at the TV. I need a scotch or something this weekend. Drink responsibly. Uh, You have a great weekend and a great week, and we'll see you Tuesday night for the Other Side interviews. This week, I'll be joined by branding expert Sean Masters, who's got some serious advice for marketing and sales and corporate brands about avoiding woke. Be careful. It's going to be a great conversation. And the full episode of my interview with Graham Haycroft from Red Unions is online on ADH TV On Demand under our new uh, interview show tile there, along with all our back episodes. Do enjoy it, and we'll see you next week for our weekly news and commentary show, The Other Side Australia, first streaming on ADH at 8pm on Friday. Bye for now.